0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information,
1: visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au We live in a world where it seems as though people are becoming more and more anxious and more and more fearful. And I think part of the reason why this is the
0: case, that the world seems to be becoming more anxious and more fearful, well, basic theological truth would be because they are turning away from God, but just in terms of what, is, what has happened in the world, you have what's called as the Internet. And the Internet, while it has so many good things, it has flooded the world with information. And while there are so many good things that come out of it, it also has provided a way in which information and terrible stories and sin in this world are coming our way 24-7, every day, seven days a week, month after month, year after year. And so because we're flooded with all the sin in this world constantly bombarded as it comes through uh, the news and internet, and so on, even us as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, can be tempted to become fearful and worry. Just this past week, I'm sure some of you may have heard uh, in. In the United States, there was a shooting at a Christian school that was under the, 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 um, the authority of a local Presbyterian church. A few teachers there were killed and, and also a few young children. And one of the children being the daughter, a 10-year-old child, the very daughter of the pastor, of that Presbyterian church, a church that faithfully preaches God's word. And I heard just a couple of days ago, there was the Grand Prix going going on in Melbourne. And while in the recent years they had... uh, said no to the Grand Prix women who you know, dress up in a certain way and they said no more women like that allowed because it's inappropriate. What has happened this year is they had men inappropriately dressed as women um, because they identify as women uh, parading themselves at the Grand Prix. And I'm sure there's Are the things in the news that you may or may not have heard of? And and so, the more and more we're confronted with this kind of information, this kind of sin that is so all around us and us becoming aware of it, we can be tempted to become fearful and anxious. Thinking about, oh, so what does it mean for us? What does it mean for our families? What's going to happen? You know, the government is going this way, and, and what does that mean for our future? And yet, it is so important for us to understand, in the midst of all that, God is still working. That we need to continually be reminded, as much as these are things that are in front of us and can be discouraging and Uh, cause us to fear and become anxious God is still at work and sometimes we need the curtain kind of peel back to show us this is what God is doing that God is continuing to do his work of redemption even this moment all around the world and even here And that he is drawing a people to himself and the people that he has drawn to himself, he will preserve and keep them to the end by his power and by his grace. This morning as we look at Genesis 46, I trust that we will be Encouraged to see that God who draws a people to himself and preserves his people for his glory, even though on the outside things may not seem as good. I've titled this morning's sermon as God's preserving grace in Jacob's family. And we'll look, look at this text in Genesis 6 under three headings. First, we'll, and, and we'll look at specifically in relation to Jacob and his family as they relate to Egypt. So firstly, we'll see how Jacob and his family are directed to Egypt. Then secondly, we'll see how Jacob and his family move to Egypt. And then in verses 28 through 34, we'll see how Jacob and his family are now in Egypt. And through it all, I trust that we will see how God is drawing his people to himself and is working out his plan of redemption and is continuing to preserve his people to That end. So, firstly, Jacob and his family being directed to Egypt in verses 1 through 4. Verse 1 reads So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Now we saw last week about the great reconciliation that has taken place in this family, where the sons of Israel are reconciled back to God and reconciled with each other and how Joseph revealed himself to his brothers and there is that wonderful picture of reconciliation and forgiveness and so on. And then the sons come back to bring Jacob back to Egypt and they come back and Tell them everything that Joseph has said. And at first, Jacob does not believe. And yet, as he continues to listen to everything that Joseph had to say to Jacob through his brothers, and then he sees these wagons from Egypt, he cannot but deny the evidence. And he believes. And he believes that his son is alive and he says, I must go to Egypt before I die. So now, chapter 46 now continues. And Jacob is now excited and he is planning to move to Egypt and meet his beloved son. But I would say, even as we'll see in the following verses, that Jacob is also fearful now. As much as he's excited to go and meet his son and move to Egypt, he's also fearful about leaving Canaan. You say, why? Because Canaan is the promised land the land that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants. Remember the Abrahamic promise consisted of three things very broadly, land, seed, and blessing. And so it was important that the patriarchs and their families stayed in the promised land. Now I want you to just think about what has happened to, you know, the the patriarchs, when they moved out of the promised land, or anyone associated in the family of Abraham even. Think of Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. In Genesis 12, there was famine. I know it's been a while since we've done Genesis 12, but there was a famine there, and he left the land of promise, and he took his family to Egypt. At that time, Abraham didn't seek the Lord. He put... Sarah's life in danger because Pharaoh almost took Sarah as his wife and he shamed the name of the Lord there in Egypt until God graciously brought him back to the promised land. Then with Jacob's father, if you think Isaac, remember Abraham after that episode would tell his servant to go and find a wife for Isaac. Let Isaac stay behind. Let him not leave the land of Canaan. And then even, even during Isaac's time, there was a famine and God very specifically, and Genesis 26 two, had told Isaac not to leave the land of promise. And even Jacob's own life, think about Jacob's early years. Because of Jacob's own sinful ways, where he deceived his brother and stole the blessing from his father, he had to run away from the land of Canaan. And as a result, he had to live in Padan Aram with Laban for 20 years, and we know all the troubles that he faced there. And he couldn't wait to come back to the promised land, and finally God appears to him and says to him, graciously, you know, come back to the land and I will be with you. And God graciously brings him back safely to the land of promise. So now Jacob has been in the land of promise, in the land of Canaan for many years. He's now an old man. And Jacob is faced with a severe famine and shortage in food supply. And he's now also received news that Joseph, his long-lost son, is alive and that God has made him ruler in Egypt. I'm sure even that, and that Joseph is inviting him to come to Egypt along with all the other family members. And I'm sure even when Jacob heard that and when he believed that Joseph is alive, I'm sure the news that Joseph, my son, is now ruler of Egypt. I'm sure he would have thought to himself, God is fulfilling what he had revealed to Joseph in a dream many years ago, that he would become ruler and we will all bow down before him. That's coming to pass right now. So, in light of all that, Because this was God's revelation as well to Joseph. So Jacob decides to move his entire family to Egypt. And understand this. See, Jacob is not simply going for a visit. You know, I'll be there for a couple of months and I'll come back. No, he's permanently moving to Egypt. Notice again in verse 1, it says, He moved with all that he had. That's not just packing a small suitcase. That's with everything that he had, he's moving. And this is an incredible act of faith on the part of Jacob. I want you to think about it, right? So on the one side, knowing God is fulfilling Joseph's dream, that revelation is coming to pass, he's he's made him ruler. That's a big motivator. Okay, this is God's revelation, God's plan. And I want to see my beloved son. He's, he's alive. But then on the other side for him thinking, but I've got to leave the land that God has promised to Abraham and his descendants. And now go and settle somewhere else outside the promised land. That would be an unthinkable thing for any patriarch of Israel. You know, I'm sure he would have been thinking, yeah, I know what's happened to all those who left the promised land and all the trouble that they landed up in, including myself during my early years. And think about this as well. Jacob is an old and frail man. You know, he's, he's very aware of so much of the sin in his life that he, you know, so many ways in which he has sinned and so many ways in which he has failed. And, and then on top of that, he's such a frail old man that even if he wanted to do something by his strength, he wouldn't be able to do. So I'm sure he's also thinking, so, so what does this mean with regards to God's promises? What's going to happen to my family? Staying in the promised land, I see my sons and everything that has happened to them, that's not looking good. How much more now if I move to Egypt and move out of the promised land? And understand this, Egypt is a powerful, the most powerful nation in the world at this time. Very sophisticated, very advanced in so many ways. And yet it is is so polytheistic, I I would probably even say even more polytheistic than the land of Canaan. Almost every other thing for them was a God. So so how is God going to, in this powerful nation, how is God going to bring about all that he has promised, land, seed and blessing? So there would have been unanswered questions swirling in Jacob's mind. And fears about his move to move and settle outside the promised land. There'd be certainly fears. But despite all that he would have been feeling, Jacob acts with incredible faith. Trusting, okay, God's revelation is coming to pass and I want to see my son. I'm fearful, I know some of these things don't make sense, but I'm going to take everything that I have now. And, I'm, and he starts journeying south toward Egypt and he reaches Beersheba. Now Beersheba is the southernmost boundary of the land of Canaan. But aside from its geographical location, okay, that's the last pit stop before you then go into the desert and then to Egypt. Beersheba was an important place to Jacob. Beersheba was the place where Abraham dug a well in his, you know, when Abraham was still alive and he entered into a peace treaty with the locals. Because they were fighting about who owned that well and they enter into a peace peace treaty and in fact it was because of that pre- peace treaty that area came to be known as Beersheba which means well of oats or well of sevens because of the the seven lambs that he had given in that treaty and then even after and that's where he planted that tamarisk tree and then called on the everlasting god And then even after sacrificing Isaac on Mount Moriah, this is the place, Beersheba, where Abraham will then come and live for the rest of his life. So this was the place that grandfather lived. This was the place where, you know, much has happened and where grandfather called on the name of the everlasting God. But Beersheba was also the place where God appeared to his father, Isaac, assuring him, again, similar thing with the well when they were at Beersheba. And then God assured Isaac at Beersheba that God would be with him and the blessings of Abraham was confirmed there to Isaac at Beersheba. And in response to that revelation of God, Isaac then builds an altar at Beersheba and Isaac also came to live in Beersheba according to Genesis 26, 30, 23 to 25. So it's a place where grandfather called on the name of the Lord and he lived there for some time. It's a place where father got revelation from God about the promises and he built an altar there and father lived there. But not only did Isaac live there, consequently, Beersheba was also Jacob's home during his early years. See, when Jacob ran away from Esau after deceiving him to go to Laban's house, it was from Beersheba. That's where where Isaac's home was. That's where Jacob's home was. That's where he runs from, from Beersheba, all the way to Padan Aram, to Laban's house. So Beersheba was a significant place for Jacob. And so he comes back to this significant place, at the very borders of the land of Canaan. And the text says, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Now, what is he doing here as he's offering these sacrifices, you know, sacrificing animals and worshiping God? You know, if I were to, you know, to sort of paraphrase what he would have been saying there by his actions, he would be saying something like this, Lord, I, I don't deserve your grace in my life. I'm a sinner and a man of many weaknesses and therefore I bring all these sacrifices to you because blood needs to be shed when there is sin. But thank you for the way that you have treated me and shown grace to me and how even my son, Jacob, how my son Joseph is alive and he's made ruler of the land of Egypt. but with fear still swirling in his mind about his move to Egypt, he would have also been seeking guidance from the Lord just to make sure that this is what he should be doing. And so now God graciously appears to Jacob in a vision at night. Notice what God says, verse 2. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Does this remind you of anything that we've seen in Genesis so far? Jacob, Jacob, here I am. Maybe a different name. Remember in Genesis twenty-two eleven. You know, regardless of what Abraham was feeling in his heart, we don't, the Bible doesn't explicitly say, but I'm sure he wasn't stoic. When Abraham was ready to give up the promised seed, his son Isaac, God appears to him and says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am. Similarly here, as Jacob is ready to give up the promised land, God appears to him and says, Jacob, Jacob. And he responds, here I am, Lord. So this is a big deal because he he's almost called to give up the land of promise where Abraham was called to give up the seed of promise And what you see by his response here I am Jacob has come to a point in his life where though he is fearful he's ready to give it up ready to give up even the promised land if that is what the Lord is going to tell him to do Jacob is fully surrendered to the Lord.
1: And now look at what the Lord says. Tells Jacob. Verse 3, then he said, I am God,
0: the God of your father. I mean, notice first of all, you know, the Lord doesn't say, Israel, Israel. I mean, that's the new name that God gave Jacob, right? But instead, God says, Jacob, Jacob. The name that means supplanter, deceiver. The name that is associated with his sin and weakness. As if God is saying, Jacob, I know you've sinned. And I know you've failed in many different ways. But let me assure you, Jacob. I'm no weak human being. I am God. The same God who made covenant promises with your father and who will keep those promises is that very same God who's coming to you now. And now God gives him three reasons to not fear going down to Egypt. First God says, again verse 3, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. So obviously this promise of becoming a great nation, that was already part of the Abrahamic promise. you know It was already given to Abraham. But there's also some new information here, and it's where God says, There in Egypt, I will make you a great nation. That's new revelation now. Yes, Egypt is a powerful and very polytheistic nation, Jacob. But my plan is such that it's not in Canaan that you will become a great nation, but in Egypt where you will become a great nation. Or in other words, Jacob, you moving to Egypt is not against my plan. It's very much part of my plan and I will show you how great I am through all I'm working
1: out, what I will work out in Egypt as I make you into a great nation. Then God says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also
0: bring you up again. He's saying, Jacob, I'm not abandoning you in Egypt. I will be with you in Egypt. Remember Jacob at Bethel? with that dream of that stairway and ladder, and he says, oh, how great is this place? And he thought that place was the connection point to God. And he thought as though God is restricted to a certain place. God is reminding Jacob again, hey, listen, I'm not tied to Canaan alone. I'm over Canaan, and I'm over the mighty nation of Egypt. And I will be with you and keep you in Egypt and then bring you back to the promised land one day. God had already promised Abraham that his descendants would become servants in a foreign land and that he would bring them back to the promised land one day. And now Jacob knows that that place is going to be in Egypt. And then we know of how God will fulfill that plan in the Exodus event. That's in the next book. And thirdly, God says, not just I will be with you and I will bring you back. God says, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now, as Jacob is listening to this, this is double confirmation to Jacob now, not just with the wagons that he saw from Egypt, but God Himself is saying, Joseph is alive. And not only that Joseph is alive, but till the day that he till the day that he dies, Jacob will be with his beloved son, Joseph. That's God's promise. That Joseph will be the one who, who will close Jacob's eyes shut once he is dead he will be with him till the day he dies. And Jacob, as a result of now being directed by God's word, he strengthened and he makes the move to Egypt. I want to bring just one application from here. You know, sometimes living in this sin-cursed world and we're trying to make decisions, we must be careful not simply to think, okay, God is sovereign and he's over all things and here's an opportunity before me and I guess because nothing's there to stop me, I, just, I guess I'll just go ahead and do that. We must be very careful of reading, you know, things like that as to, oh, that's something that, honors God because our hearts can easily deceive us and we can justify things that are not honoring to the Lord and just because there's an opportunity there and nothing seems to stop us we should not think then therefore we should just go ahead with it how then do we think of making decisions in this world Well, okay, maybe there's an opportunity in front of us. But then we need to think about that opportunity and what it entails. Because otherwise, you remember what happened to Lot, right? There was no pasture land for his flock and there was division between Abraham and Lot. And so they decided to part ways. And what did Lot do? He saw, wow, beautiful land, pasture land and green. I'll just go there. He didn't seek the Lord. He didn't do anything. And we read of the repercussions of that, both for him as well as his family. So when we make decisions in this world, we need to start by seeking the Lord in prayer, asking the Lord for wisdom, coming back to the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I can deceive myself. I'm weak. I can take things into my own hands. Please help me. And then we have other brothers and sisters in Christ that we can talk to, to get counsel. Here's what I'm thinking. You know, do you have any wisdom with regards to that? But most of all, then we should come back to the Word of God and what God's Word says. Is this thing, what I'm going to do, does it go against the Word of God? Or things that are... Involved in my move to a certain place? Are there things where I'm going to compromise myself or my family or other things? Ultimately, we must be directed by God's word, no matter what we do. God's word must be our standard and not simply our intuition or just because an opportunity pops up in front of us. So then when we hear the lies of the world and the pressures of the world on us and the pleasures of the world, what are we to do? Run back to God's word. And stay in God's word and understand him and his ways. And and only through God's word must be Must we then be directed in how we must proceed forwards? God's word is really one of the ways in which He preserves His saints
1: in this world.
0: So here we first see Jacob and his family directed to go to Egypt, and now they make the move to Egypt. And here we come to our second point in verses 5 through to 27 verse 5 Then Jacob set out from Beersheba the sons of Israel carried Jacob their father their little ones and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him So again if you look here it just shows how weak and frail Jacob is because he's he's counted with the women and the children that he had to be carried in the wagons because he's so old and frail Verse 6, they also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan and came to Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. So the entire household of Jacob goes with him to Egypt, along with all their belongings. You know, there's an emphasis there. All his offspring, or all his seed, literally. He's brought them all, all his seed into Egypt and not one of them is left behind. The seed through whom God promised blessing to the nations, they have all moved to Egypt. You know, historically, this... Move is important because it shows how the Israelites end up in Egypt. It's this move finally and that's how the Israelites end up in Egypt. And this sets up now the next stage in redemptive history as they begin to live in Egypt. And because this move is so important and and to further emphasize that all the offspring of Jacob moved to Egypt now all the sons of Jacob are listed by their names including their sons as well look at verse 8 onwards it says now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt Jacob and his sons now the way Jacob's sons have been listed here it's not according to their birth order but it's according to their their mothers, and they're grouped accordingly. So moving on, verse 8. Reuben, Jacob's first, firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Now we know the sins that Reuben has committed, even Simeon and Levi of how they massacred all those men in Shechem, but here we are told that Simeon had a son through a Canaanite woman. Remember, they, they weren't supposed to take Canaanite women for themselves. And so this is again just a glimpse or pointing to the danger that this family was in as they were assimilating with the Canaanites and their practices. That's what's happening to Simeon because he has a son through a Canaanite woman. Yet, yet, God has graciously included them and is moving them and is keeping his promises to Jacob and his family. Verse 12. The sons of Judah, Ur, er, Onan, Chela, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. Now we know that Judah married a Canaanite woman. woman, And his sons, Ur er and Onan, did what was wicked in God's sight and God put them to death. And then Perez and Sarah, we know they're, they're the sons of Judah through his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And then specifically Perez's sons are included because it is now through the line of Perez the Messiah will come. Verse 13. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Zered, Elon, and Ya. Jalel, and these are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. Notice how the text there very specifically says these are the sons of Jacob through Leah, and that they were born in Padan Aram not in the land of promise, but these sons of Jacob were born in Padan Aram. You know, it's as though the text is saying, you know, God has promised to multiply you and, and make your family a great nation in Egypt, outside the promised land. Well, here's the evidence that I will keep my promise. The sons of Leah were born outside of the promised land in Padan Aram. And if I can do that, then I can surely do even more in Egypt, outside the promised land. Now moving on, verse 16, the sons of Gad, Ziphian, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Areli, the sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with Zerah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah, heber and malkiel these are the sons of zilpah whom laban gave to leah his daughter and these she bore to jacob 16 persons so we're even reminded of laban who caused so much trouble for jacob and these are the sons of jacob through leah's maidservant zilpah and so as we're thinking through that you know People should be thinking of all the drama that went behind that with Laban and Leah's maidservant and the big drama that went around because of that. And yet, God is graciously included them and moving all of them to Egypt. And they're part of his corporate seed. Now notice this next section, unlike the other women who bore Jacob's sons who are put at the end of the list, notice the difference in the way Rachel is introduced, verses 19 through to 22. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Jerah, and Naaman. Ehai, Rosh, Mupin, Hupim, and Ad. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. So notice, Rachel is mentioned twice. She's the only woman that's placed at the beginning of, of the list of sons. And she's the only one that is called as Jacob's wife. None of the other women are particularly addressed as Jacob's wife. And that should remind us of Jacob's favoritism to his beloved wife, Rachel, and the division there was between Jacob's wives. And yet, God has graciously included them and is moving them to Egypt as his corporate seed. Verse 22, 23, the son of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jazil, Juni, Jazer, Shilem. These are the sons of Bilha, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. So finally, the sons of Rachel's maidservant, Bilha. Now when you tally up the names of all these sons, they add up to Seventy, and that's significant as we will just see in a minute verse 26 all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt who were his own descendants not including Jacob's sons wives were 66 persons in all so now the list includes only the sons and the sons sons the wives are not named even the servants and the servants' wives and their children are not named. You know, so this would have been a much larger crowd if you took the whole number of people who were migrating to Egypt. But only the sons are named, and verse 26 now say, says that there were 66 in number who went to Egypt. How is that? Well, two sons of Judah died, Onan and Ezron. And then the two sons of Joseph that were born in Egypt. So they come later. They don't move to Egypt. They were actually born in Egypt. So that will bring the number of sons to 66 that came from Canaan to Egypt. And then verse 27 says, And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. That's Ephraim and Manasseh. And all the persons of the house of Jacob, who came into Egypt were 70. Or in other words, all that belonged to the house of Jacob, finally now in Egypt, there were 70. Now why does the text emphasize this number 7 and 70? Well, the number 7 in the Bible has the idea of wholeness or, or completeness. And if you remember back in Genesis 10, where we had the table of nations, the divided nations after the Tower of Babel, there were 70 nations that were represented there and they represented the whole world, the complete world under the curse that was divided into these 70 nations. And now you have Jacob and his sons And the text says that they amount to 70, showing that this is now a whole or a complete new humanity, so to speak, that God has brought about. A family that has been fractured for so many years. A family that bears the scars of various sins and failures, even as you look at that list that's mentioned there. But God has reconciled this family to himself and to each other, making them whole, making them a new humanity from which God will use this new humanity to bring about his plan of redemption and bring blessing to the rest of the nations. You know, at this point, 70 sons might not look like much. But it is this small group of sons that God will preserve and prosper and make into a great nation one day whilst in Egypt. So much so that finally in Exodus we read that as they become so prosperous and numerous that even the Egyptians were threatened by the Israelites seeing their numbers. You know, and once they became a great nation and God delivered them from Egypt, God reminds the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 7.7, you know, when he says, I did not choose you because you were so great. Sure, you're many in numbers right now. But by implication, and then he says, you were the least of them. And in light of this text that we're seeing here, what God is alluding to is, you were nothing back then when you came to Egypt. You were nothing but 70 sons. That's all you were. You were nothing. You were the least of them. So you were nothing great. But I chose you and made you great because I loved you. That's the only reason this deliverance has happened, he tells the people of God, the people of Israel. I think there's an application for us as well as a church family. I want you to just look around you. God, by his great love and grace, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to bear the punishment of our sin on that cross so that we would be reconciled back to himself and to one another. As we look at this family of God, this tiny little family of God, sure, we all bear the scars of sin and failure. Very much so. And we still have a long way to go. But Christian, if you are fearful about the future, about what God is doing... If you're thinking, will God bring me to the end? Will he keep me to the end? Here is proof positive that God will ultimately bring about his redemptive plan even for your life. Look at the Christian sitting around you. It is a picture of what God will do in the end when Christ will return and will have all his people from every tribe and tongue, reconciled to himself and reconciled to one another. And the very fact that he has already made a people as as weak as we are, as insignificant as we look, we are children of God. Children who will be preserved by the grace of God, children who are placed on this earth in this sin cursed world to be His representatives and to be a blessing to the nations and to draw more people to Himself. This church and every other church is evidence of God's preserving grace, of what He will do ultimately, because otherwise, these people of God and these gatherings of God's people would not exist in the first place. Just like those 70 sons was evidence that he was going to preserve his people and keep them and use them mightily, so also we, as we look at each other, if you ever doubt, is God going to preserve me? Just look at this group of weak Christians. It should give you assurance.
1: Oh yeah. That's why he saved a bunch of people like us. And now finally we come to our last
0: point in Jacob where Jacob and his family is now in Egypt. Verse 28. He, that is Joseph, had sent Judah ahead of him to joseph to show the way before him in goshen pardon me he meaning jacob jacob sent judah ahead of him to joseph to show a way before him in goshen and they came into the land of goshen so judah is given the charge by jacob lead the family lead the way into the good land of goshen You know, I I, I think this is a marvelous reversal that God is doing here. Because in the first place, it was Judah's plan that took away Joseph away from his father. It was his plan to sell Joseph. And now it's Judah himself, though very transformed Judah by the grace of God, who will lead his father into Egypt to prepare him to meet Joseph. And with Judah leading the whole family into the good land of Goshen, I wonder if there's even a hint of how Jesus, the ultimate seed of Judah, will lead his people to the good land in heaven. Verse 29. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face and know that you are alive. You know, this is such a wonderful reunion. It would have been for Jacob and Joseph after 22 years. Jacob, who thought that his son was dead, And that he would go to his deathbed mourning and grieving. God, by his grace, has also reversed that. And he's brought joy to Jacob. Where now he's reunited with his beloved son. And so much so that he's so filled with his joy. Now he says, I can die now in peace now that I've seen you alive. You know, it's almost like Simeon in the New Testament. When he sees Jesus, in Luke 2, 29 and 30, you know he sees Jesus, he says, now I can die in peace, for I have seen the salvation of the Lord. Now, after this wonderful reunion, Joseph now makes preparations for them to stay in Egypt. Look at verses 31 through to the end of the chapter. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his fa- father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock. And they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock, from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may land in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an
1: abomination to the Egyptians. You know, um, the shepherds
0: were very much needed in the land of Egypt. Because Pharaoh himself would have flocks and herds. And Goshen is the best place to live in Egypt. It's very fertile and a lot of pasture that is needed for flocks and herds. And then to top it all, it's on the edges of the Egyptian society. So the Egyptians need shepherds and flocks because they need the wool and the meat and so on and so forth. And they need people to man these flocks and herds. But the text also tells us that the shepherds were an abomination to Egyptians. Maybe it's the smell of sheep that they have all the time. Or maybe because the Egyptians were such an upper class, advanced society and the Egyptians were generally seen as, you know, not well-educated and just is nothing. Or perhaps it's just the general cleanliness compared to the you know, super clean-shaven, uh, super clean Egyptians of that day. Whatever may, may have been the reason, the shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. And I think it, it, this is a very shrewd plan on Joseph's part, Because he is telling his brothers and his father to speak the truth not anything else, but he wants it to be very clear as they speak to Pharaoh because he understands Egyptian culture and their worldview because the shepherds need flocks and herds and they need shepherds but on the other side, shepherds are an abomination to them but in order for these shepherds that their family is made up of they need to go to good pasture land which is what Goshen is. And this is an area away from the Egyptian population. So you know what's going to happen?
1: Or how God is directing their steps? Pharaoh almost has to give this land to them, where because they're shepherds, they're going to be left
0: alone. They're not going to intermingle with the Egyptian culture because shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians so what's going to happen? they have the best of the land they're going to thrive and flourish in this land of Goshen not intermixing with Egyptian culture not intermixing with the polytheistic culture or even the temptation to marry Egyptians and so on and so forth God is separating them and keeping them distinct in the land of Egypt in the land of Goshen How wonderful is God, isn't He? Preserving them this way and protecting them this way. I love that. He's keeping them distinct and apart from Egyptian culture. And now you can think, even as you read the genealogy and the history of Jacob's family, as they were in the land of Canaan, they were divided and they were assimilating into Canaan in so many ways. And yet here is God who's powerfully brought them together, reconciled them to himself and to each other, taking them to Egypt and putting them in the most fertile place where there's pastures, where the Egyptians will leave them alone. They can have their own identity. They can worship their God and they can thrive and flourish and be distinct as the people of God. That's the same God. Whom we serve today. The same God. Whom we serve today. Who will. Keep us. Even when the world. Is completely polytheistic. Or atheistic. Where he will preserve us. Why? Because we are his people. And how much more. Thinking through redemptive history you know we have so much more revelation and so much more has happened more than these 70 sons and their families who've come to the land of Goshen We understand that now Jesus, the Son of God, came as a human being into this world and he died on our behalf and our sins are forgiven past, present and future and we're covered with the righteousness of Christ and we're forever reconciled to God in relationship with him, in union with Christ, with the Holy Spirit indwelt in us, secure with the triune God. And then on top of that, we have his word that directs us. We have his people that he surrounds us with. And then on top of that, we know providentially through everything that will happen, he will still do all things for the good of his people, preserving them and building them up, making them more like Christ and keeping them to the very end. Brother, sister in Christ. No matter what this world looks like, this is ultimate reality. Everything else that we see around us is temporary. Temporary reality. And this is what God is doing. He is reconciling a people to himself and the people that he has reconciled to himself, he will preserve them by his grace. And so much more we understand now on this side of redemptive history. Knowing that we are ultimately and fully secure in Christ with the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. So we cannot in any way lose our salvation or go the way of the world. We have no reason to fear or be anxious. Friend, if you are listening this morning and you are not a Christian, you are not a follower of Jesus. I'm not talking about simply naming the name of Jesus, but truly following Jesus Christ. I want to tell you, based on what Scripture says, you have every reason to fear. You have every reason to fear. Because the Bible says, apart from Christ, every human being stands guilty before a holy and righteous God. Every human being apart from Christ has rebelled and sinned against God and stands guilty before Him. And God being a righteous and holy God, He must punish sin. And so if you don't trust in Jesus and follow Jesus, you should have every reason to fear. But let me also tell you, friend, That this God, this God that you see here in Genesis 46, because he was bringing about his plan of redemption, and 2,000 years later from this, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world in the form of a human being. Lived a perfect life, perfectly obedient, never sinning. And then he died on the cross for sinful people like you and me. And then not only did he die, he rose up on the third day. And that proved that he paid the price for the sin of his people. It proved that he is God and anyone who then turns from their sin and puts their trust in Jesus will be saved. Friend, I would just implore you to turn to Christ. And see who he is and what he has done and trust in him. Without Christ, you have every reason to fear, not just going the way of the world, you have every reason to fear the wrath and judgment of God ultimately. But the same God has provided a way by which you can be saved. Turn to Jesus and trust in him. And if you say this morning, I believe, I trust in Jesus, I understand he's the son of God, I understand he's come down and paid the price for my sin by taking my place on that cross, then I would say then, turn from living for yourself. Turn from living for your sin. Turn from living, making much of yourself, and turn to live to make much of Jesus, because that's the evidence that you are truly a follower of Jesus. For those of us who are Christians, who, have, who understand that we have been forgiven of our sins because of what Christ has done, who understand that we have the Holy Spirit living in us, when we are fearful about our faith, when we are fearful about different things, let us know that ultimately Christ will hold us to the end.
1: That's his promise. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the revelation of your word. And again, the, the, the patterns in which you work in the lives of your people is similar because you are similar. So for those of us who are your children, when we fear and when we doubt,
0: help us to know that we are ultimately secure in Christ and with the Holy Spirit indwelling in us help us then to trust you and to trust in your promises and continue to be faithful to you father we pray that this reminder once again would refresh our hearts and our minds as we go out into the world this week and as we sin as we see more sin and more suffering and more difficulties that it would only encourage us as to what you are doing behind the scenes knowing that you are continuing to preserve us in in this world for your glory and to draw more people to yourself. We give you thanks and pray that you would continue to be with us. And we
1: ask this in Jesus' name.